Our scripture reading for today is from the book of Nehemiah chapter 2. The book of Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 1 through 8. Of course, we believe these words come to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, the inspired word of the Lord. And so let's hear together the word of Christ. Nehemiah 2, beginning in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, but the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And the king said to me, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will we be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And let a letter to Asaph be written, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the city gates of the fortress of the temple and of the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of the Lord. Again, our four-year birthday today, it's, it's a lot to think about. I, I am kind of curious, who was here for launch Sunday? Just raise your hand if you were. Okay, so we got some good launchers here. Not many though, but guys, hey, four years, we've been around. Um, you know, we, we started our church, uh, and something that I'm so grateful for this church is, is the moment that we are in right now, and I think who Christ's covenant can be in this moment. Uh, it's definitely a time where, not just in Atlanta, but everywhere, the, the concept of truth can be confusing for people. Is truth something that's just relative, right? Is truth just something that's local? Is truth just something that you believe in your heart? Or is there an eternal truth that sustains in all places throughout generations? And can we know that truth? And of course, you are the people that have believed that, that have believed that there is a God who has spoken and the truth flows from him, from his perfect and sovereign existence. We also find ourselves in a time, I believe in the city of Atlanta in particular, of what I call ecclesiological crisis. Now, that's a big word, but Ecclesiology is the study of the church. And I think a lot of people in our city in particular are asking themselves that question, what is the church? 
is the church fundamentally a building, right? Do you go to church? People say, people always say, I say I'm a pastor. They say, well, where is your church, right? In 2020, I had to say, well, it depends, right? <laughs> I don't know exactly know where it's going to be this week. Um, but is church something more than that? Is God redeeming the world through buildings? Uh, is church primarily an event, right? Is it just something that you attend for a good experience and for a little uplifting teaching? Is God redeeming the whole world through events, right? Is church just streamed content? I, I, I you know, hear people saying now, like, well, I have my church on Tuesday morning in my pajamas, right? So is that what, is that fundamentally, is that essentially the essence of what the church is, streamed content that you can consume whenever that helps you along a little bit? And of course, it's no, Christ's covenant, you're the people that have gone to the scripture and said, no, the church is not essentially a building or an event or content, though churches may have buildings and content and events or worship services, but the church is essentially the people. Those people that have been called out by the gospel, those people that have been called and knitted together in the gospel, those people that are on mission for the gospel. And that's who you are. In, in a confusing time, you're the people that have been bold enough to say, we believe that God has spoken. And we want to live our lives like that. And, and in, a, in a time when people are confused on what a church is, people are saying, we know exactly what the church is. We see it over and over in the New Testament. It is the people of God, that God is calling to himself, that he's sending out on mission. And I just want to say, I am so excited to be a part of that. I am so humbled to be a member of a church like that. I, I want to be a member of a church like this. That people that I can align with that love God's word and that, that know who we are together. And so, I, I, you know, as much as we're all grateful to the Lord today, I just want to say I'm grateful to you for this opportunity. What, a, what an opportunity. What a church to be a part of. You know, people always say, when did Christ's covenant begin? And, you know, I guess we were, I was like the first pastor, but Christ's covenant began so long before I ever got to Atlanta. I just want you to know that. Christ's covenant really began... You know, when, when people like Ashley and Diane Corbett started praying for a church like this 20 years ago, Christ's covenant began when people like David Dieter and Jason Byers started saying, okay, how can this happen? How can we do this? People like Jim Haskell, who now pastors another church, wrote a white paper that kind of outlined who Christ's covenant could be, what this church could be like. The energy started gathering around when churches like Johnson Ferry under Bryant's leadership gave financial support, gave people, gave help. It, it, there's so much that has happened here, but the way I like to describe it is this, and this is important. I want you to hear this. God was at work through people that were seeking him in prayer that he had placed in providential places that took meaningful action and received God's favor. How did this happen? How did this happen? God worked through people that were seeking God in prayer, that God in his providence had placed in particular places that took meaningful action and received God's 
favor. And I think that's a great thing for us to think about right now because that is exactly what we see in the book of Nehemiah. That, that is this story. Uh, Nehemiah seeking the Lord in prayer that God had placed in a providential place that took meaningful action and received favor from the Lord. If you were here last week, we talked about how to read the Old Testament and I kind of gave you these three ideas. You, you look for themes, signs, and promises and then you need to understand the story arc, where you are in the story. Themes, signs, and promises. And three of the themes that are really imp important to understand the Old Testament or understand the story of Nehemiah in particular uh, are the themes of temple or this idea that God will dwell among his people. That's an incredibly important theme in the Old Testament. The theme of law, and that's the theme that like, God has spoken to his people, that he has revealed his character as people. And, and told his people, here's how you should live. Here's the character that you should live by. And then finally, kingdom, that as these people know this living God, as God dwells among them, as they follow his law, they will live something out. There will be a result. There'll be an effect. There will be a kingdom. Now, as we said last week, the book of Nehemiah is really the second half of the book of Ezra. They used to be one book. I kind of wish they were still one book. I think they would be easier to understand if they were. But this is kind of the third movement of that bigger book. And in the first part of the book, in the book of Ezra, we see a guy named Zerubbabel go back after the exile of Israel to rebuild the temple. So we see that theme, a very important theme. Then in the second half of the book of Ezra, we see Ezra going back and reading the law, teaching the law to the people, calling the people to live by the law of God. And now we're moving to kind of the third part. And I think it goes along with this, this important theme here, the idea of kingdom, that Nehemiah is going to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. So God's kingdom, God's people can be restored. God's people can live together and live by his law and so that his glory and worth and weight can be known through him. God working through people, seeking him in prayer. God had put in providential places that took meaningful action to carry out something that God had called them to do under God's favor. And really I wanna look at four points as we look at this today. God-honoring action begins with prayer. God-honoring action is related to his providence. God-honoring action is dependent on God's favor. And then fourthly, the bigger action. So let's look at the first point. God-honoring action begins with prayer. We looked at this a little bit last week, but I just wanted to spend a bit more time on this. This, this can't be overstated. A few years ago, there was a survey that I read and it was of 600 high school graduates, or 600 rather college graduates that were Christians. So these are, these were people that there was some fruit of their Christian life. They weren't Christian in name only. There was evidence of their walking with the Lord, 600 college Christian graduates. And they were asked, what strategic step, what important step would you take in trying to find a job right after college, right? Some of y'all have just been there. You know, we got a lot of folks just right out of college. What, what's an important step would you take in trying to find a job right after college? 600 students were surveyed. And you know what they said? They said, I would network with my parents' friends. They said, 
I would look for an internship program. You know, they said I would go to, you know, events where I could meet people and try to find uh, someone that would give me employment that way. I would send out resumes. They said all sorts of things. And of course you would expect, right? Of course you would do these things. But only two of these 600 Christian college graduates said, I would pray. <laughs> I think that's kind of interesting. Only two actually thought to begin with prayer, to commune with God. I think that's pretty telling though, especially for a crowd like this. I mean, look, we are active people, right? You guys know how to get stuff done. You guys know how to make stuff happen. And I want to say this, there is a way in a material and secular world to miss the point of Christianity. <laughs> there is a way to be so discipled by kind of this transactional world and material world that we find ourselves in to be a Christian and miss the whole point, which is communion with God. <laughs> which is to know God. That's the whole point of this whole thing, that people like us could have a relationship with the living God. And there is a way to come at Christianity because you need a moral framework. You all have a need for a moral framework, right? And there is a way that that's all Christianity is to you. It's a, it's a way to live your life. It's a, way of, it's a set of principles. It's a way to kind of organize your thought. There is a way to come at Christianity only for transactions, some absolution of guilt. I've made a transaction with God and now I'm forgiven of my sins and now I know that I have taken care of my afterlife. Just a transaction. There's a way to be a Christian in this material world and be so discipled by this material and secular world that you miss the whole point of Christianity, which is to know the living God. That is what God has invited you into not just to have a transaction of salvation, not just to have some sort of good moral framework, but to know him. Jesus came so that we might be God's children. Jesus came so that we may abide in him. Jesus came to gather a people unto himself. And I love this. When Nehemiah hears the report, and we looked at this last week, but when Nehemiah hears the report of the condition of Jerusalem, he doesn't immediately jump into action. He goes to his God. He communes with God. He prays. And of course, we looked at the nature of this prayer last week, praise and confession and hope. And then he presents these requests to the Lord. This is from chapter 1, verse 11. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, Give success to your servant today. And this is important. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who is this man that Nehemiah is talking about? Of course, he's talking about the king. He, he, he is praying this before the Lord, knowing that he's going to have to make some appeal to Artaxerxes. And what does he do? For four months, there's four months between chapter one, which was the month of Chislev, and now we're in the month of Nisan. So for four months, praise, confession, hopeful in God's redemption. And then he brings these requests to the Lord. Be attentive to the prayer. Give success to your servant. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Praise, confession, hope in the Lord. Be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man for four months. 
Nehemiah just communes with the Lord. And in this, I believe in this, he is so in tuned with God in what God is doing and he knows God more deeply and that's the point. When you really begin to know God deeply, you begin to see what he's doing, what he's up to. You ever have any friends that really know the stock market? I mean, when I say, do you have any? I am friends with some of you who are who I have in mind right now. Like you really know the market. That, that's a good thing. I'm not about to call you out as a sin, okay? You're thinking like, do I really know the stock market? <laughs> that's okay. But you really know the stock market. You know what I'm talking about? Friend, the, the, that guy that he follows the market really close and whenever you're with him, you know, something will come up and he'll say, oh man, Apple, you know, you're, you're holding your phone. He's like, Apple, they had a rough week. They got that issue with the manufacturer over, you know, over somewhere, you know, they, they just know what's going on with the market or a new building will be going up and they'll say, oh yeah, you know, the, the company that is providing the steel for that building, I really believe in. It's like, how do you know all of this, right? It's because they keep up with the market. They follow the market. And because they watch the market, I want you to hear this, because they know the market, they can see the market at work all around them. They can see how the market is actually impacting their lives because they know the market. They spend time with the market. They read the Wall Street Journal. They, they read The Economist. They, they, they're in tune with the market. This is what prayer does. This is what prayer does. Prayer so tunes you in with God and what he is doing that you will begin to see him everywhere. You'll begin to see how he's working everywhere. You'll begin to see what doors he's opening everywhere. Trust me in this. This is what prayer does. It, it lifts your head up to see that there's more going on than what's so immediate, than what's so close. And this is the point. Communion with the Lord. And Brother Lawrence was a 17th century monk, not a great theologian. He certainly didn't have some big position. You know, people critique Brother Lawrence's theology. Well, the guy wasn't a theologian. He was a guy that worked in a kitchen. But this guy would pray and he would commune with God. And he wrote this very famous book called The Practice of the Presence of God. And in the book, basically the point of the book is he talks about his life in constant communion with the Lord, in constant fellowship with the Lord. It, it's as if he always is aware of God's presence. He's practicing the presence of God. And all of this, he, and, and because he's practicing the presence of God and all that he does, he, ple he seeks to please the Lord. He said, let us think often that our only business in this life, listen to this, is to please God. Let us think often that our only business in this life is to please God. Perhaps all besides is but folly and vanity. So even in the most menial task, I mean, this guy, this is what he did. He, he scrubbed dishes in a monastery for his whole life. That was his big achievement. And yet in all of that, he was pleasing the Lord. He said, we ought not to grow weary of doing little things for the love of God who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. And that is what prayer does. It will totally transform everything you're doing. You'll begin to see little things as, 
as activities where the Lord is engaged, where the Lord is involved, where the Lord is at work. It changes your whole attention. It lifts your head to the Lord. And I love this. Nehemiah is so faithful. For four months, he presses into communion with God. And then when the king comes to him, God just gives him this layup and he's ready. He knows what the Lord is doing. He's, he's watchful to see what God is doing. But even when the king comes to him and says, all right, man, let me help you. What can I do for you? He prays again. I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said to the king, verse five, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. God honoring action begins like this. It begins with communion with the Lord. But second, God honoring action, and this is so important, I want us to see this today, is related to providence. The providence of God is one of those things that Christians have debated that can be confusing. But, but basically when we talk about God's providence, we mean it to say this, that God is in control. <laughs> that right now God is working out things, good things and even bad things, according to his purpose, according to the counsel of his will and for the good of his people. In good things and in bad things, God is working. Now, of course, Christians believe that one day God will make all things right, right? There won't be bad things. There won't be sad things. All sad things will come untrue. All evil will be destroyed. God will make all things new. But now, God is at work. You are where you are, not by accident, but because God is at work. And God has purposes in where he has placed you. The Heidelberg Catechism speaks of God's providence like this. The Almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Why was Nehemiah <laughs> the cupbearer? We think about this job. The cupbearer was a position that would Basic, it, was, it was basically like a life insurance for the king. He would, he would save the king's life. He, people would try to kill the king or poison the king. The, the cupbearer's job was to basically taste everything that was going to the king just to ensure that he wouldn't be poisoned, to be a personal servant of the king, but to literally more than that, to put his life on the line in a way for the king every day. What a job. And, you know, Nehemiah had served faithfully in this job. And he, he actually... He actually had found great favor with this king. It's interesting, the response of the king when Nehemiah basically comes to him. I mean, let's look at verse six. The king said to me with the queen sitting there, right? So this is his family. You know, Nehemiah is known. He is a part of the family. He is a treasured servant. He's a beloved servant. How long will you be gone? And when will you return? Right? Do you hear that? I love that tone. The king loves this brother. And Nehemiah, don't leave me. How long will we be gone? But it pleased the king when I had given him a time. He was in a position of favor. And, and what's amazing about this, in this position, by this enemy king, Nehemiah gets everything he asks for. 
This is an amazing text. The Persian king gives them the timber. I mean, think about this. The Persian king rebuilds the walls. The Persian king gives the timber. He gives the safe passage. He even gives Nehemiah housing in these things. This is the point I'm trying to make. It is not by accident that Nehemiah was in this position. God, in God's perfect timing, had placed Nehemiah in this perfect place for his purposes. And we see this a lot throughout the post-exilic books. And I just want to say this to you. I look around this room, and you know what I see? I see nurses, and I see teachers, and I see business men and women, and I see doctors, and I see uh, real estate folks. I see all sorts of people all throughout this room. And, and I want you to hear this. That's not by accident. God has not placed you in those places by accident. God has put you there. You, God has not put you in apartment complexes and condominiums and houses and neighborhoods by, by accident. God hasn't put your children on sports teams by accident, right? These are things that the Lord in his providence, and we don't understand it always. It's not that God spoke to you and said, make sure that your five-year-old daughter plays for the Greenbird soccer team, you know. But she's not there by accident. She's not there by accident. God in his providence is calling you through where he has placed you. You know, like I said, we're in an ecclesiological crisis in our city, I think, and we don't understand the nature of the church. If the nature of the church is that it's just an event that you attend, then church is going to be over in a few minutes. But that's not God's design. How do you know who's in a family, right? What is a family? Is a family just the family when they're at the dinner table? No. A family is the members of the family. And that's the same thing with the church. The church is the members of the church, the people that sometimes gather. Right now we're gathered. And it's important that we gather. We need to gather. But that most of the time scatter. And when we scatter, we are no less the church than we are when we gather. And when we gather, when we go out into this city, in all of these places with all of these skills, finding favor with people all around us that need nurses and that need teachers and that, that get along with you because you're the parents on the soccer team. When we go out and scatter throughout the cities with all of these experiences and skills and relational capital that God has given us, we go out, hear this, as ambassadors for Christ, as ambassadors for the Lord. We need to gather. I believe this, hear this. The measure of faith that you exercise when you gather will determine the measure of faith that you exercise when you scatter. We need to gather. We need to come here. We need to be reminded of the gospel. If you're not coming to this meeting with faith, you're gonna be a lousy scatterer, right? But the better you gather, the better you'll scatter. And then I want you to hear this. And it's also true that the better you scatter, the better you'll gather. And here's what I mean by that. Here's, what, here's, here's God's vision for our church, that we would gather 
and be reminded of his gospel and be reminded of who we are, reminded that we are the people that God is calling to himself to let his kingdom be known and his glory be, be known through us. And then we would go out as ambassadors and, and, and seeking to, to let his truth and glory be known in our neighborhoods and among even our families and our workplaces. And we would scatter so well that by the time it comes the middle of the week for your small group, you're like, I got to get around some Christians right now. I can't wait to gather. I need to gather. I need somebody to pray for me because I got this thing going on. I need somebody to remind me of this truth that I believe because everybody else around me believes something different. Are you sure you guys believe all this? Okay, okay, we're good. And then you get back out and you gather as an ambassador for the Lord and you, you scatter or you scatter and you scatter so well. <laughs> it's so faithfully that by the time Sunday comes around, you're like, I gotta get, I gotta gather. <laughs> I got to be around some Christians again. I got to be around, I got to be reminded of these things again. I need to worship this Lord that I've seen at work through my life. That's so true. When you understand God's providential calling in your life, when you start to see God at work, your love for him will grow. Your delight in him will grow. You will want to worship him. You will see that he is at work and that he is the living God. When we started Christ's Covenant, we talked a lot about finding Atlanta. Some of y'all remember that, find Atlanta, find Atlanta. And what we, what we were trying to say is Atlanta's lost. It's a city where so many people do not know the Lord. The, the great majority of the people in this city do not know God in Christ. The great many Christians in this city, I think are poorly discipled and confused. And what it means to follow the Lord. We have a lost and confused city. And, and we wanted to say, if, if God could place us here and we could be faithful to his gospel and gather well and scatter well, then maybe we could find an Atlanta that has been so impacted by the gospel that it's a totally different city. Can we find an Atlanta like that? Can we find an Atlanta like that? And we need to gather and be equipped and stirred along, but this will only happen when we scatter well. We aren't a four-year-old worship service, right? <laughs> we aren't a four-year-old maker of content. We are a four-year-old church. That's what we planted, a people called out by the gospel, called together in the gospel, sent on mission for the gospel. And here's what I would ask you, in God's perfect providence, where has he placed you? How is the gospel impacting, and I'm just gonna start here, your family through you? Are you scattering to your house faithfully as a mom or a dad, as a child? How is the gospel impacting your neighbors through you? How is the gospel impacting your workplace through you? Where has God in his providence placed you? And one of the reasons that we invest so much into things like family ministry, into things like community groups and table talk, into things like John Posey back here, our uh, advisor for faith and work, because we want you to be faithful as you scatter. When you start to live out this calling too, as I said, you, you will so begin to see the Lord at work. Which brings me to the third point. God-honoring action is connected to God's blessing. You know, this is an incredible passage. I love this passage because it's the 
Persian king. I mean, don't miss this. It's, Ar- it's Artaxerxes that says, oh, you need wood? <laughs> you need a house? You need safe passage? Here, have it all. How, how do you not see that that is from the Lord? And Nehemiah sees this. He says, the good hand, my, the good hand of my God was with me. He doesn't say, man, I was a good negotiator. <laughs> man, it's a good thing I tasted all that wine for him. No, he just says, God did this. He saw it. He saw the hand of God at work. Just like some of you guys can see the stock market at work. He saw the hand of God at work. He knew that only God could do this. You know, look, there's so many stories like that at this in this church. I mean, even, even, even our building, I was thinking about this this week and I could go on. Some of you guys sent me the most wonderful little emails over the past few days that we're going to read some tonight. But, but here's one that I just think is amazing that's kind of related to this. You know, you know a lot of the money that God provided for our building, that we use for our building, were, were contribution matches that companies who have an ethos and a worldview that is very different from the Christian gospel, Okay. Companies that have a very different worldview than the worldview of Christ matched contribution credits that some of you who work in those companies gave. And God, we were getting checks from all of these companies that we would all look and say, that's a really secular company that are now paying for a building for us. The United States government at this perfect time just gave our church huge stimulus checks that now a lot of you just passed them through. Is that okay? Well, We'll, we'll let the Lord do something in this city with this resource. It's amazing. How can we not say that God is doing this? The good hand of our God has been upon us. And, you know, as we celebrate this fourth birthday, we could just go on and on. God has provided for us in so many ways with, with leadership. He's provided, he's always provided. As, as strange as our places have been, God has always provided a place for us to be and to gather. God has provided so many doors for ministry, so many wonderful relationships. The good hand of our God has been upon us. And and I think that this is also instructive for us because Nehemiah says this before the work's really begun. And I would just say that to us too. There's so much ahead of us. The good hand of our God has been upon us, but now we need to go and rebuild Jerusalem. But the final thing I want to get to, the final point is the bigger action. Nehemiah's action, this, this plan to go and rebuild Jerusalem, I, I don't want you to miss this. It wasn't just some vision Nehemiah had, right? It wasn't just like Nehemiah was like, oh, I know what would be good. No, he, he knew this. He knew that this is what he had to do because he knew God's word. So I said before, he knew the themes. He knew that God was calling a people to himself, that he was gonna dwell among those people. And so there needed to be a temple. He knew that God's word was the revelation of his character and that people needed to hear that revelation and live that out. And he knew that God was establishing a kingdom people. He knew God's themes and he got in line with how God was going to redeem the world, with how God was calling a people to himself, with how God was making himself known. And, and through Nehemiah's obedience, and I want you to hear this, through Nehemiah's obedience, the net result of that, and there's a lot that happened in the middle, but the net result of that is now some of you 
Most of you, I pray and hope, are those people, the people of God, that the Spirit of God doesn't just dwell near, but literally dwells within. You are the people that know the law of God, that are living out the character of God. You are the people that are the kingdom people of God, this redeeming work that Nehemiah was faithful to be a part of through his obedience has now spread to us. And here's the call to us. And I want you to hear this. Part of being a part of this kingdom is joining God in this kingdom work. Part of, part of the stories that are going to be told of God's faithfulness to redeem his people are going to be told because of our obedience to the things that the Lord is calling us to. You are now those people. And you are now those people because after Nehemiah, there was a greater Nehemiah who came to save you, particularly save you, to establish you, to call you, to bring you in. Nehemiah left the palace of Artaxerxes, this glorious palace with this amazing, what a job he had. He was in this glorious place and he went to this faraway place that was dangerous and he could have been killed. But our Lord Jesus, <laughs> he left the palace of God the throne of the Almighty God to go to a faraway place where he knew he would be killed. Nehemiah was a beloved servant of the king, but he left the king. He left the king because he was called to, to his people, to God's people that he, that he loved. Jesus wasn't just a servant of the king. He was the beloved son of God, the Father Almighty. Yet, he left that and came to identify with us because of a people that he loved. Nehemiah went to go establish and call something through great threat. And, and Jesus has done the same thing. He has left his father's throne to identify with you, to obey his father. You know, Nehemiah obeyed knowing that in his obedience he would be blessed. But Jesus obeyed the father knowing that in his obedience he would be crushed. He would be cursed. He would be cut off so that this people that he is calling to himself, that he's establishing, could be blessed in him. We have a greater Nehemiah. But through this greater Nehemiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, this work of redemption has now really taken off. It's not just the children of Abraham that are called to the New Jerusalem, but it's children from every tribe, in every place, in every tongue, so that the glory of God may be known. Let's follow this great redeemer. Let's look to him. Let's give our lives to him and let's join God in this great redeeming work. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the faithfulness of Nehemiah that now people like us are a part of that. We're a recipient of this redemption, Lord, that you are working out through your servants, through your people. And I pray, Father, that, that on this fourth birthday, Christ's covenant would be the kind of church that is not ignorant to these things. We'd be the kind of church that's not so proud of ourselves. We'd be the kind of church that just realizes that you are up to something. The good hand of our God is with us.
And I pray that we would always be the people that realize that there is a greater Nehemiah who has come to offer us this ultimate redemption and that through him, we can have life and have your blessing and give us faith to believe these things. Open our hearts to these things. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.